Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Fire Chief Joe Pfeiffer was the first senior member of the New York City Fire Department on the scene of 9-11. As smoke filled the sky and people began to run for their lives from the towers... He stepped forward and took command of the rescue operation focusing on the North Tower. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to mark the 21st anniversary of that infamous day in history, a day which took the lives of almost 3,000 people and marked the start of the war on terror, I'm joined by Chief Pfeiffer himself to take us through his personal history of taking command on 9-11. Chief Pfeiffer, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Warfare podcast as we mark 21 years since the tragic attacks of 9-11. How are you doing today? James, I'm doing well. I'm glad to be with you today. Well, it is truly an honour to have you here. And I'd love to start by hearing a little about your personal history. Of course, you were head of the fire response on the day of the 9-11 attacks. But what made you want to become a firefighter back in the 1980s, in 1981? Being a firefighter was part of my growing up because I, I wound up being a lifeguard and then a volunteer fire department fighter. And believe it or not, there are a half a dozen volunteer fire departments within New York City, and I was part of one of them. And that gave me the incentive to pursue that as being a member of the New York City Fire Department. So as you started to rise up the ranks and move from the reservists, when did you become Chief of Battalion 1? In 1997, I became a battalion chief, and I love, and I still do, I I love Lower Manhattan. It's just a mix of people from around the world and then some just very quaint neighborhoods. And downtown, the tip of Manhattan was my neighborhood and the one that I was uh, in charge of. I love it down there as well, especially um, if I'm honest. Some of the bars are just fantastic. I'm in upper Manhattan at the moment, and it's the strangest thing. Our schedules didn't collide properly, but you're over in Queens, right? You're about 10 miles from me. Yeah, somehow I think we should have got together in Manhattan and had a had lunch and we could have done the interview over lunch. You know what? I think we're still going to try and, and make that happen. I am around in the US back and forth for the next few weeks. So we've got to have a chat over a, a coffee or a beer. But that's also forewarning to our listeners, because if you're hearing sirens and anything going past, then you'll know it's just the hustle and bustle of New York life. Now, take us into a little bit of your experience in those earlier days of your career. You, you started as a firefighter in 81. 
But would you say one of your first major tests when it came to a terrorist attack was actually, you know, not 2001, but 1993, in the first attack on the World Trade Centers, one that's often forgotten from history? The first attack in 1993, where six people were killed, I was working in Queens, so I wasn't there that particular moment when they were evacuating thousands of people. But I did show up, actually I was assigned later on, the next day, where what we call a watch line. So in the crater that was created by the bombing, they had fire department personnel there to watch for any more damage and also the engineers that were coming in. So we were like there to protect those people that were still working on the site to reinforce the damaged area. Well, it was an incredibly dangerous time. The, the whole point of that terrorist attack was to try and take a giant truck full of explosives. We're talking tons and tons of explosives down into the underground car park underneath the Twin Towers and to blow it up from there so it would shake the building from its foundations and, and try and make it collapse. It is astonishing to think that these sorts of attacks were being planned by Al-Qaeda almost 10 years before 9-11. It is. And the aim was to collapse one tower into the next tower. And uh, it didn't work. And I think, I think at that point, we became overconfident. And we didn't realize that terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda were continuing to do the planning. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's, it's that sort of attack that, that made many of us think that the Twin Towers were perhaps almost indestructible as well when it comes to being targeted by terrorists or they wouldn't try it again. And it's that, I suppose, that false lull into a surprise attack that leaves us with the history that we have today. But maybe you can take us into a bit of that history on your experience on September 11th. 2001. Because rarely, I guess, in a strange quirk of fate, your response, your reactions were captured on film by Jules Nowday. So how did the Nowday brothers become involved in your firehouse? Jules and Gideon Nowday were riding with us all summer long because they wanted to film a new firefighter, what we call a probationary firefighter. And um, the summer was pretty much quiet and they didn't get too many fires to film. But on the morning of September the 11th, Jules was riding with me. Matter of fact, we started the night before at 1,800 hours and were continuing into the next day for a 24-hour shift. And that morning, we were standing about 10 blocks away from the World Trade Center at a routine odor of gas in the street. And Jules was filming, nothing too exciting until we heard a loud roar of a jet coming overhead. And as you know, in Manhattan, you never hear planes because of the tall buildings. Then we watched American Airlines aim and crash into the North Tower. It must have left an indelible mark on your mind. And indeed, that footage is something that just continues, I think, as a defining moment during that period of history. But one thing that stuck out for me from that video was that your initial reaction was that this was a direct attack. And so many others, commentators, experts that went on for hours after the incident, thought that this was an accident, an accident that a plane and even a second plane had been flown into the towers. So what made you think from that very moment that it was a direct attack. 
as you saw in Jules's film, and he has the only copy of the first playing, by watching that, I knew that this was no accident. I actually saw the plane turn and aim for the North Tower. So I got on the radio and I told the dispatcher that we had a number of floors on fire and that the plane was aiming for the building, which were my exact words that was captured on audio and Jules' camera. And was that taken seriously? Was that something that was passed up as quickly as possible to the higher levels? Do you feel like that was something that was accepted? It was passed up. And the reason why I know that is because someone came on the radio after me and said, if the chief is saying that the plane was aiming for the building, this could be terrorism. So we knew going into this that this was going to be very, very dangerous. Now, of course, naturally, your first response was to head straight down to the towers, and you were actually the first fire chief on scene. So what was your reading of that situation? What was the first steps that you took? As I pulled up in front of the towers, I could see the smoke coming from high above, and I took command of the lobby, which is normal fire department operations. And my concern was to evacuate the building and then regroup on the upper floors to rescue those that couldn't get out. And I could tell you that firefighters came in quietly. And firefighters aren't quiet people at all. (laughs) We make a lot of noise. But that morning, every firefighter, every EMT and paramedic, every police officer knew as they looked at the towers, they were going to the most dangerous fire of their lives. And even though this is our job, I could tell you that everyone that saw the flames from above and saw people at the windows made a personal decision to go in, to risk their lives for those who were in their greatest moment of need. I think it's such an important point to reinforce, Chief, because you know when firefighters came on the scene, there were people already beginning to jump from the building to escape the flames, to make the decision about how they were going to die, the, the only power that they had left. And then for firefighters to see that, and to then make the decision to put their lives at risk and to go inside. I mean, it just shows such bravery and such courage. It really does. And I'm so proud of those firefighters that came in. And I even saw my brother, who was a lieutenant in Engine 33, come in. And we had a moment looking at each other, worried that we were both going to be okay. And then I told him to go up, to take his firefighters, to evacuate and rescue those that were in the building. So that was the first stage of your coordinated rescue plan was to start sending people up into the North Tower, helping those down who may have been injured, those who have disabilities need help just to get down as as quickly as possible. Was that the first steps of the plan? That was the plan. And once we got people out, we would leave ourselves and let the fire burn itself out. Now, you have to understand that there was never any history of a high-rise building collapsing. So that wasn't even in our consciousness or what we thought is maybe a localized collapse, and we knew it was dangerous, so we sent other battalion chiefs up to make sure that our firefighters are safe. No one imagined that a 110-story building would collapse. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But then the second tower did collapse just yards away across the plaza. So did this completely change your response to this crisis? Well, what you saw and... Many of your listeners saw a news broadcast I did not see. I had no idea that the loud rumbling sound that I heard was a high-rise building collapsing. And the lobby of the North Tower went completely dark. And even in the darkness, I took out my radio and I knew something was wrong, that we couldn't command in the darkness. And if we couldn't command... I got on the radio and said, command to all units in Tower 1, evacuate the building, which sounds like a perfect order when you know that the other building collapsed. But not knowing that, it was a difficult decision to pull our firefighters out with thousands of people still left in the building. It's difficult to fathom how that could be possible, how you could be in one tower just across the road and as the other tower collapses to the ground, that you don't know what's going on. But I spoke with Joe Dittmar, who was one of the survivors. He was at the highest level of one of the towers before they fell. And he told me that when he finally made his way down to the ground floor, even though the tower had fallen, the other tower, there were still people queuing at the Starbucks waiting for their coffee orders because they just didn't know the full extent to what was going on. And he just kept on moving as far as he possibly could When was your moment that you knew that you had to get out of there? Well, after the first tower collapsed, I also evacuated the building because we couldn't command there. And we regrouped on the corner of West and Vesey Street, so right in front of the North Tower. And at 1028, 
we heard that loud rumble sound again. But this time, somebody yelled, the building is collapsing. And at that point, I started to run up Vesey Street towards the Hudson River. But in full bunker gear, helmet, coat, boots, pants, you don't run too fast or too far in 11 seconds. And then this beautiful summer day full of bright sunshine goes completely dark, where even in the street, we couldn't see the hand in front of our face. It was that now infamous gray cloud of debris, smoke, just rushing towards people, enveloping everything around them as people ran towards the what they deemed to be the, the sanctuary of the Hudson River. I know that many people jumped over the, the seawall and just tried to escape the suffocating fog that was all around them. How do you start to coordinate any sort of rescue mission from that situation? As the dark dust cloud started to lift, and those of us who survived and those that were coming in from other areas of the city and from home, we gathered around the rubble pile of crumbled concrete and twisted steel. And at that point, we must have looked like a ghost or marble statues covered with this gray dust, wondering if anyone would survive. And we started to organize from the bottom up because we lost our top leaders in the department, our chief of department, our first deputy commissioner, other staff chiefs. And we started rescue operations and and looking for people. Rescue operations, we continued for 18 days because we heard from people that dealt with earthquakes that 14 days was the longest people survived. So um, we added a couple extra days on. And um, after 18 days, we went to recovery operations. And that continued for nine months to the end of May of 2002. Chief, it's a difficult question, but at this moment when you're inspecting the pile, what we know now as ground zero, and and you can hear the eerie sound of many activated PAS devices, those emergency devices that firefighters wear when they become incapacitated. Did you start to think, did you have any idea of where your brother Kevin was? No, we. I heard the PAS alarms going off. And I hope one was his, that he'd be near the surface. I tried to call him on the radio, and um, I couldn't get an answer. But that's not unusual. There was a lot of people trying to talk at once. But he was one of those casualties, one of the 343 firefighters that died that morning. 343. And when you put that into perspective, that's over 10% of all of those who died on 9-11 were the firefighters who were desperately trying to save those stuck in the towers. Yeah, it's an, an awesome number, something that you know we won't forget. But not only do we have to remember those firefighters that ran into the danger that day as a sign of hope to get people out, and we did. We saved 20,000 people that morning. But in the days and weeks that turned into months, we saw firefighters on the pile at Ground Zero. And... Firefighters in their helmets have a little flashlight, and that little light in the dust cloud became a symbol of hope for the rest of the world, that we're looking for others that may survive, that we're coming together as a global community, speaking against terrorism, and caring for those people that were injured, and for those families that lost loved ones. And of course, with that in mind, we also have to remember those first responders who are still struggling with health issues today after inhaling the toxic fumes. Many who I know 
personally who are still struggling and they have some support, but there's obviously still a lot of support still to give to them and their families. And that's something we're still dealing with. There are over 280 firefighters that responded that day and and the the days and the weeks later that died from 9-11 dust. My aide that drove me for a decade, Ray, has the same last name as me, Ray Pfeiffer, but we weren't related. He died from the 9-11 dust because he was searching for people from his firehouse and people who were in the trade center. So the trauma of 9-11 still continues. Well, I know that every year on the anniversary of 9-11, you attend a memorial service at the World Trade Center. What is it like entering that new World Trade Center today? What was it like entering that new World Trade Center for the first time it opened and you had the memorial there in 2014? It was a very eerie feeling going back into the World Trade Center, actually into the new One World Trade Center. And I was taken up by the Port Authority to the very top. And I was able to look across the metropolitan area. It was a strange feeling to be back in a building, in a new building that represents all the people we lost. But it also represented how we came together as a global community. Through our tears, we gave all victims of terrorism a voice, a voice to speak out against these inhumane acts of using mass violence for political strategy. And I really believe that as we go back each anniversary and we gather, families gather, and other victims from around the world watch, we become a collective voice, a collective voice of all victims to speak against terrorism. And I think through our ordinary acts of kindness, we will get to change things to make a difference, but only by working together. Absolutely. I think that is the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Chief Pfeiffer. Please tell us, where can we read more about the history of this day and of your own personal history of 9-11? For the 20th anniversary, I wrote a book called Ordinary Heroes, a memoir of 9-11. It is my story of that day and the days and the years after. What I wanted to do was bring people back and make it personal, not just a news broadcast, and to not only tell my story, but the stories of those firefighters that ran in. It's interesting, I took the title Ordinary Heroes because it represented what I saw that day. As the firefighters went up, my brother included, and people were coming down, They told people, don't stop. You can make it out of here. And those simple words made a difference. So I think if people go to those memoirs, to the book Ordinary Heroes, they will be able to see themselves in doing ordinary things, but in an extraordinary time that will make a difference in people's lives. Well, Chief, we'll all be thinking about you and those who lost their lives and are continuing to struggle Today, those brave folk, as we remember the 21st anniversary of 9-11, and we will, of course, put a link to your book in the show notes so all of our listeners can go out there and read your history. Thank you so much for your time. You are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you, James. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.